0: welcome to another coaching youth basketball podcast with the coach brendan sir uh today it's really a fun one for me in that uh jeffrey Marks is our guest is one of really neat authors uh that we have in our country and on a variety of subjects and i got really familiar with jeff about 10 years ago when he wrote a book called season of life on this really transformational character um has had a huge influence on my coaching career and that's Joe Ehrman who's wrote Inside Out Coaching and lives in Baltimore. Uh, You really, If you don't know about Joe, search him out. Get Inside Out Coaching. It's a life-changing book about how to coach and he talks about his journey at the Gilman School as a football coach. I'm not going to spoil it by telling you but he just takes these very, very exclusive, well-to-do kids and teaches them about playing football, but really about how to lead life and about how to love one another, how as coaches we must love them. And really the transformational versus transactional coaching is where that all started for me. Uh, Transactional coaching, for most of you, is people that just care about winning and losing nothing in between. Transformational coaches are people that are concerned about developing young men and women so that they can win the game of life more than the actual score of the game. So it's a big influence on what you need to know and do as a coach. Uh, Jeffrey Marks also is an author of many other books, of course, and is a world-class expert on the most decorated track and field U.S. member, Carl Lewis, back in the 84 games. Uh, was just sensational not just winning 100 200 relay but also the broad jump uh, and he turned it into the long jump and uh, just an amazing character and uh, you're going to hear a story that I was involved in when I was coaching in the NBA where Carl uh, you know was part of believe it or not and uh, all i'll do is tease it by saying you will now know the rest of the story and it's a fabulous story about the great carl lewis so i want you to really enjoy this it's a really interesting conversation that we have he's a baton rouge resident now so we get to see each other often and i wanted to share jeffrey with our audience i think you'll enjoy it uh, remember now uh next week July five and six in Orlando. Uh, will be our first session of coaching you at Lake Island Prep. Terrific lineup, great coaches. Uh, my friend Eric Spolster just called me today and he's gonna show up there because his team's playing there. So he wants to come there too. He's incredible. Uh Steve Clifford just joined us, the coaches Charlotte. Hornets, and so you're gonna just see an amazing coach there who, uh, just as a fabulous defensive person, uh, then out in Vegas. You know, we go to the following week on Monday and Tuesday, so we got a lot of basketball in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to cut it down to one podcast because Zach and I are getting tired, and Alex, Alex is getting tired too. But we're going to really, uh, we're going to really uh, zero in on some of these podcasts, and our basketball is going to be good. Make sure you sign up on coachingyoulive.com if you want to come. Remember our VIPs twenty eight. Uh, streaming videos, you know, all for your total, okay, $560 value, okay, all for the total, you're going to get all three of the sites that we've done this year, so really great, looking forward to it, we're all excited about uh, what's going to happen next week, coaching you, and the week after, Uh, let's listen to our partners, and then we'll be right with you with Jeffrey Marks. Our friends at Crossover want to help you coach smarter and win more games. They'll cut and tag your game film for you, giving you back interactive shot charts, searchable clips, and advanced statistics in just 12 hours. Stop wasting time in the film room doing all that tedious prep work. Simply log in and start getting powerful analysis straight from your video. Even if you think you already know what these guys are all about, I suggest you take another look. Their new insights, features, create hex charts, and shooting efficiency reports for you and your opponents. Something you're not going to get with Huddle or anybody else. Get the boys and girls teams on board and you'll both save 10%. Add on football, volleyball, lacrosse, hockey, or soccer, and your savings go up from there. Sign up at www.crossover.com forward slash coaching you to receive one free game. That's crossover with a K. Dot com slash coaching you to get one free game. Fast Model Sports is the world's most versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, Fast Draw. FastDraw bridges the gap between whiteboarding and the digital world with an incredibly easy-to-use interface that can be used on both your computer and your iPad, providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. doesn't stop there. Along with FastDraw, they have other great programs such as FastCout, which I have used, which helps coaches create clean professional sky reports customized for your team. Fast model is trusted and used by every NBA team and WNBA team and 85% of division one college teams and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills for their online coaching community for access To these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Hey, let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high-tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market today. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and to provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind in basketball shooting Industry that enables coaches and players to stay connected, design and upload training exercises that combine shooting, conditioning and ball handling into one complete workout and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real time adjustments and improved performance. It is without question the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. It's been the official shooting machine of coaching you for the last two years. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to drdish.com basketball.com or follow them on Twitter at Dr. Dish B-Ball. Today I have a a real special guest, uh, Jeffrey Marks. Uh, Jeffrey uh, is someone that I've been following for years. Uh, One of my business partners, Tom Flick, uh, every time he gives a speech uh, he always referenced Jeffrey's work, A Season of Life, and so I I bought the book. Tom and you know said, "Hey, you got to get this book. It's really something." And then, the the character in the book, who we'll talk about in a little bit, Joe Ehrman, uh I got to meet and fell in love with. And so we're going to talk a lot about a very unusual style of coaching, which you know Jeffrey will describe how he kind of embedded himself and learned this style. And it's really foreign to a lot of high school, college, and pro coaches, the way they coach. But I personally think it's almost the only way to coach. Jeffrey, welcome. Great to be with you, Brendan. Thank you. I really wanted to also mention that uh, when I came to LSU a couple years ago, I'm sitting in my office in Baton Rouge. And all of a sudden, you came walking in and it was like a mirage. And I'm saying to myself, my God what are you doing in baton rouge tell us that story of how you got a guy from rybrook new york you know my neighborhood how you get down to baton rouge
1: well i was lucky because i ended up meeting and marrying a beautiful lady from thibodeau louisiana and uh... i first met her gosh in the uh... mid nineteen nineties i have dale brown to thank for that she has dale brown to blame for that but years later, uh, we began a long distance relationship, Leslie and I, and we ended up getting married and I moved to Louisiana. So I was born and raised in New York school mm-hmm. in Chicago, most of my adult years in Washington, DC. And now here I am being told that I'm geographically challenged, but here I am loving Louisiana.
0: Me too. Me too. And, uh, and, and it's really a neat place. And, uh, but people like you and I, we can live anywhere, I think. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, you mentioned, uh, our friend Dale Brown and we had Dale on several months ago on our podcast. And he was such a joy, such a treat. Uh, he's a treasure of stories and, and, uh, you know, he's just, I think a one in a million coach, uh, as far as he, there aren't many like him. And, uh, some people will say that's good, and I, I I I challenge that because I find him to be, uh, he's like that guy in that commercial, one of the most interesting people in the world. I think he's just a fascinating guy, and uh, Dale should have been born about 20 year 30 years later because he is doing more for the internet with the amount of emails he sends than anyone I know.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> of it's funny. They get him. I love the way you refer to Dale. I have a different way of describing him, but it fits right in with what you're saying. I refer to Dale as a living, breathing state park in the state of Louisiana, and here's why. Dale has done so much for so many for so long that everyone around here kind of feels like they own a little piece of him, and that's because he's given so much of himself through the years, and as you know, he's still so active. He does incredible events and programs still throughout the state of Louisiana and traveling as well, but just an amazing man. So, so fortunate to consider Dale a friend, one of my best friends in my entire life and, and a special, special man. That's great.
0: Uh, Let's talk about a season of life and let's talk about uh, how did you ever get interested? You know, you're a guy that's pretty fascinating, have done a lot of interesting folks and everything, but how did you ever get interested and meet Joe Ehrman?
1: Well, I met him first, I have to answer that two different ways, because I met him first as a child, and then much later as an adult. As a child, when I was 11 years old, uh, I became a ball boy for the Baltimore Colts, of course a team that doesn't even exist anymore, now the Indianapolis Colts, but in the summer of 1974, I was just a small 11-year-old boy, and I ended up hanging out a lot at that summer training camp for the Baltimore Colts, and Joe Erman was one of the guys who reached out and pulled me in. He was this larger-than-life figure. He was a defensive lineman for the Colts. He had been a first-round pick in the NFL out of Syracuse, where he was an All-American, and really became one of the leaders of the Colts defense. Ended up being the captain of the Colts defense in the mid-1970s. So I ended up working with, living with, and traveling with the Baltimore Colts through my teen years and even a couple years into college. So Joe also uh, played a key role in those years that I spent those summers with the Colts. But in 1983, when I was in college, that was the last time I had any interaction with Joe. He was just finishing up his professional football career, and I was a student at college uh, in Chicago, and that was it. 18 years passed, and then we kind of re-met, I guess if you can call it that. Uh, I was working on a project in Baltimore, and Joe and I reconnected in a very special way. Our first phone call in 18 years, we talked for about an hour and a half. And I learned so much about what he was doing and decided to visit with him in Baltimore. And then it took me off on a journey that I never could have expected.
0: Now, not to give away a whole lot, because I really want our listeners to read both books. Uh, because I think when you read season of life, you'll get the journey, so to speak. And then Joe in inside out coaching will kind of tell you from his point of view, uh, what transformational coaching is but both books are side by side of must reads my opinion so Joe at that point had gone through hell to put it mildly as far as his life his personal life we're not going to give away a whole lot but this really really aggressive defensive player huge guy all of a sudden his life personal life goes to hell correct
1: well, he had a huge loss and one that really took him down. Joe was in his 6th year in the NFL. It was 1978 and he lost his little brother Billy Erman. I uh, think fair to say that Billy was Joe's best friend mm-hmm. and uh, Billy went through a long, difficult illness. Uh, he had aplastic anemia and when he died in 1978 it was brutal for Joe. Joe had been spending all that time with him in the hospital and playing football at the same time and When he lost his brother, he went through a lot of uh, suffering personally and, and a lot of really searching for what was next and what had meaning in this life for him. And that's what took him off on his whole new path into the ministry. Yeah, so he went into the ministry, and this
0: is this guy that is just one of the toughest, dirtiest football and lacrosse players. And then all of a sudden, this guy finds the Lord. Amazing
1: transformation right there. It really was. And a big party guy, too, in nineteen seventy. I forgot that guy. part so, of it, yes. Yeah, when, when Joe was playing for the Colts, if you wanted to know where the team party guy, <laughs> guy was, he, he was the one to check with or where the poker game or what bar everyone was going to after the game. And, you know, there was always something going on in Joe's life. He was a fun loving guy, uh, a leader both on the field and off, both in terms of playing sports, but also uh, that fast life of the 1970s of a professional athlete. So it was a huge change for Joe. In fact, when I reconnected with him all those years later, it was really amazing for me to learn about the things he had done during those 18 years.
0: Yeah, and and Joe in his book and in his speeches talks about how he, you know, he got heavily involved in drugs and things like that. So it, it's nothing uh, that we're talking out of school. And that's what makes the story even more special because then when he decides to change his whole life, become a minister, and then go into the ministry, and then become a high school, basically assistant or co-football coach at a private, wealthy school in Baltimore. Tell us,
1: that's really, I think, where the whole story starts. Right. So in 2001, when I reconnected with Joe, I had heard pieces of some of the things he had done along the way. I knew that he had started an inner city ministry called The Door. I knew that he was now pastor of a large church in Baltimore, about 4,000 members. I knew that he had been highly responsible for the building of the first Ronald McDonald House in Baltimore to house sick children and their families. He had been running a program called Mission Baltimore that was all about racial reconciliation in a city that desperately needed help and hope in that area. So there were all these incredible works, and and we talked about those in detail. And then he shared with me at the end of this call oh, by the way, I'm also coaching a little high school football on the side. And I was shocked by that. I knew Joe didn't really care a whole lot about football anymore. But the only reason he did that, he, was, he had started a program called Building Men for Others, which is all about teaching boys how to be men of substance and impact in this world, as opposed to the, all the other junk that they're getting out there. And the way Joe explained it to me, he viewed high school football as such an ideal context in which to teach the lessons of that program. And that's the only reason he was coaching football.
0: You know, the, the idea now, when you talk about, when you listen to Joe and he talks about really good coaches build men or they build women, depending on who you're coaching. And when he said that, when I was in the audience and I had already finished 30 years of coaching in the NBA and uh, was now a college coach, you know, on my second journey as a college coach and I'm listening to that and I'm saying and I'm giving clinics all over the world and I'm saying it might be the most (sighs) profound thing I've heard and as your number one mission statement tell us about when you went and saw now you got a picture tell us Jeffrey about the school I mean I think that's what makes it Baltimore we know is one of the toughest cities in America but the school there in Baltimore is the exception
1: Well, Gilman's a beautiful school. It's a private school. It's an all-boys school, but what I love about the program that Joe was running there, along with Biff Pogey, Biff, uh, Joe's dear friend and head coach of the team, and Biff Biff was running the program, and Joe was the defensive coordinator at the time. What I loved about what they were doing, it was also such a diverse group. So you had all sorts of boys from all over the city. You had uh, every type of combination you could think of lining up there on an offense or a defense or the special teams together, and that's part of what really made it profound and you know their view I think it has to go all the way back to the first use of the word coach in the English language you may be familiar with this in the 1500s back in England a coach was a horse-drawn carriage but it had a very specific definition it wasn't just any old carriage the purpose of it was to convey or transport a person of importance from where he or she is to where he or she wants to be needs to be or ought to be going So I would make the argument all these years later, based on what I saw with Joe and Biff, that we ought to be expecting that and, in fact, demanding that of our youth sports coaches today, taking our people of importance, our young people, from where they are to where they want to be, need to be, or ought to be going. That, of course, has nothing to do with points on a scoreboard. That's all about things that have to do with life, about relationships, about having a cause beyond yourself and so many different things. So... To put it in perspective, I got there the first day that summer practice of 2001 because I was curious to see what this thing was Joe was doing. And the first thing I saw, their first practice of the season, I saw Biff, a head coach, standing in front of those boys. They were seated in the grass, about 80 or 90 boys, junior uh, junior varsity and varsity football players, sitting in the end zone at one end of the field. Biff before them and about seven or eight assistant coaches standing behind Biff. And Biff yells out to those boys, What is our job? And the boys yell back in unison to love us. What is your job? To love each other, they yell back to Biff. And I'm standing there thinking this is about the weirdest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, we have to remember, high school football, football is the most violent sport in America, and they're up there starting the season talking about love. It took me a while to come to understand that that signature exchange between the coaches and the players really represented everything that they were doing with those boys.
0: I, I, and when he talks about that i said what this is like i i can't believe it but now when he goes and he starts to talk about you know you have to understand why you coach you know and all those how how did you feel what made joe erman this huge man uh this person that has a ministry what made him so special then it just Another coach had done it. What, 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 why do you think it worked?
1: Well, I think it works for a couple of reasons. Number one, Joe and Biff share of view, as do I, that sports is probably the most powerful platform in America today. So when used properly, what an incredible way to reach and teach young people. So that was number one. And then number two, they took a lot of time. This has to be strategic. It has to be intentional. It's not just going to happen on its own. So they took a lot of time to develop, implement, and then really alter, uh, improve, adopt, and adapt different pieces to their program. Their program is called Building Men for Others. And so it's really based upon uh, taking what our culture gives boys, uh, what it supposedly means to be a man in this world. They call it false masculinity. And then replacing that with their own concepts, they call it strategic masculinity. And to do that, to take that platform of sports as powerful as it is, and then to take the power and the purpose and the passion that really defines their messages about life, you put those together and then you take the type of people that they are personally, and it can't help but work. I mean, it might take some time. I'm not saying every school in America could do this right away, but boy, in the last 15 years or so, we've sure seen a lot of schools adopt the messages and then adapt them to their own needs. So special people with a special message and then a way of implementing it you you know i
0: i think it's uh i think it's really one of the things i think joe now uh you know in his in his really you know his whole purpose in life now is to really go around our country and just teach coaches how to coach this way uh in a transformational type of way and i think it's so unique i think it's something that all everyone that you know we have so many coaches that are on this podcast right now that if you really want to you know discover your why of why you want to coach you know study uh Joe's book inside out coaching but also make sure that you know you read as a platform a preview to it uh Jeffrey's book on a season of life tell me also you know as a great writer and probably at a fabulous Northwestern Journalism School, right? That you.
1: I did, did go to. I went to Medill School of Journalism yes. at
0: Northwestern. Love that place. And and so you also did an interesting book on a wonderful track star, someone I got to see in the Olympics. Uh, talk about Carl Lewis. Oh, absolutely. Well, now you're taking me back a few years. I know. Uh, but that I was, was there my... in L.A. Coliseum.
1: I saw him. Oh, man. I wish I could say the same. I didn't meet uh, Carl until after that. We started working on his book. Um, it, it's the first of my six books, and we started working on it in 1988. Uh, we first met right before he was going to the Olympics in Seoul, and then we spent the year 1989 uh, writing and rewriting and editing that book and then released it in 1990. But Carl... It's so funny, we've already talked about a few people in just this short time today, Brendan, we've talked about Dale Brown, we've talked about Joe Irman, and now you bring up Carl Lewis. Maybe it's not a coincidence, but I would say in all the years I've been involved in sports and in life itself, that we have now talked about three of the men who I respect most in this world and also three of my best friends. How about that? And the reason, the reason why I have such respect for them is, I would say that they're probably the three people I've known in life who have done more things for more people intentionally than anyone else. I've had the the privilege of being around and, you know, Carl, everyone knows him for the the gold medals and the world championships. He was the first American man to, to make five Olympic teams in the U S in track and field. He was actually the athlete of the century as named by sports illustrated and the international Olympic committee. So his achievements running and jumping in stadiums around the world, obviously incredible, but That's not the first way I think of Carl Lewis, strangely enough. The first image that comes to mind for me is a man sleeping on the floor of a hospital room in San Francisco. And that's because in 1989, when he and I were working on his book, my little sister, my only sister, my best friend in this world, Wendy, became very sick. And she was in a coma in a hospital in San Francisco and needed a liver transplant to save her life. And when Carl, you know, we were talking every day at that point, When he realized what was going on, he immediately got on a plane in Atlanta, flew across the country, helped us get the word out about the need for organ donation and would not leave that hospital in San Francisco uh, until Wendy's life was saved by a liver transplant. So the work that we've done in the years since then has had very little to do with sports and really a lot to do with a cause of our own. And that is to reach people across this nation about the horrible shortage of organ donors. So that's Strangely enough, the first way I think of Carl Lewis, it's the friendship, it's the family relationships, and it's this cause that we have shared now for all these years.
0: Wow. I never knew that about Carl. You know, I'm from North Jersey, so he's from Camden, New Jersey, down South Jersey, by Philadelphia. And uh, so that's the thing we share. Uh, but I also shared a night with him in 1993. Uh, in the Meadowlands in New Jersey when I was coaching the Nets with Chuck Daly and we're playing the world champion Chicago Bulls and Carl sang the national anthem.
1: (laughs) Well, Brendan, now I'm going to tell you the real story because Uh, I was there that night as well. Were you really? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what went on there. And you're not going to believe this, but Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever shared this publicly well, before well, you, you're only gonna
0: tell a hundred thousand people, so don't let the this spoil it now. Don't Well message. now
1: that you brought it up, I'm gonna share it with you. It's really an incredible story. It's actually a pet peeve of mine all these years. <laughs> Here's what happened. Okay. Carl and I I can tell you that was in January. Yeah. Because it was just a day or two I wanna say it was just the day after the presidential inauguration. Okay. And Carl was in Washington DC where I lived at the time. Uh-huh And we were out there for the inauguration. Of course, you know, that's an outdoor event at the Capitol. It was very cold. Carl was already sick. He had a sore throat and a lot of other things going on. Had a head cold. Really shouldn't have been outside in the cold. But then the very next day, we had some meetings uh, in D.C. In fact, I remember one with Senator Bill Bradley, speaking of basketball in New Jersey and the New York area. And we had a meeting there. We had a couple other meetings on Capitol Hill. And then we left to drive up from D.C. to the Meadowlands where that game was. And Carl had been invited to and had committed to singing the national anthem that night before the game. So it was my advice to Carl as a friend, as we were driving up there, Carl, this is crazy. He could hardly talk. We must've stopped three or four times for hot tea and throat lozenges and all that to try to get his throat to where it needed to be. But it was really something he shouldn't even have tried. I'll never forget sitting in, I don't know if it was a referee's locker room or maybe an extra little locker room underneath the stadium there at the arena. Yep at the Meadowlands, and I remember prior to the game, you can uh, tell me what his title, I believe at the time, Willis Reed, was he the Willis general Willis Reed manager? was our
0: general manager, yep.
1: Okay, so I remember Willis Reed coming into the room, and it was just, it was a great thrill for me, because sure. growing up, I was a Knicks fan, and it was so neat to me to meet Willis Reed, and we had this great visit with him, and he was so excited about Carl singing the National Anthem, and I was still trying to convince Carl not to do it, but if you know Carl, he's a man of his word, and Once he had made that commitment, he wasn't going to back out. I said, Carl, it's not like you didn't show up. You're here. You're just not feeling well. This is a crazy idea. Let them introduce you. Let them explain that you're not feeling well. You were going to sing the national anthem. You can stand out there and still greet the crowd, but then let them play a recording. Well, he wouldn't hear anything of it. I remember him trying to get his voice going, running hot water in the shower in that locker room to get some heat going. I mean, the whole thing. And Brendan, when he went out there, I wish as a friend I'd been a better friend. And as someone who does work with Carl as well, I wish I had stepped in a more forceful way, but I didn't. Uh, He went against my strong advice and did what he decided to do, which was stick with his commitment. Unfortunately, uh, it's become what he calls one of his YouTube moments now. Uh, And of course, everyone knows about that. It's crazy all these years later to hear someone bring that up yet again. I understand why because a lot of people do remember that. But, man, I've just always felt in a strange way kind of responsible that I didn't step in in an even stronger way than I did. But Carl, Carl's a pretty strong-minded guy, and once he had it in his head that he felt that commitment, he wasn't going to back out. Well, he felt terrible. Well, about let me, it. Let me and,
0: say this. Um, I'm glad you had not met Joe Herman yet. I'm glad you didn't know squat about inside-out coaching and stuff like that because that was one of the best damn YouTube moments I've ever been – I'm looking down the court, and I see my friend Michael Jordan, and I see him just busting out. And I I got my guys, Kenny Anderson and Derek Coleman and Drazen Petrovic, and even Chuck, who's, like, stoic, is, like, he's, like, almost moving. But I'm telling you, it was the best. And and for that, Carl got, I mean, everyone in the world knows. And you know what? It's a good-natured. Laugh. I mean, it's not. We're not making fun of him, but the. You know, it's. Remember, old Paul Harvey. Now you told the rest of the story. So that's great. Well, that's something no one knew. I love it. And, and there's even a postscript. Do you oh want my to hear gosh. The postscript? Yeah, uh, sure. The, hey, I, that's a great the great thing about owning this show. We can do whatever we want.
1: All right. Well, here's the postscript. The postscript also involves our mutual friend Dale Brown. Believe it or not. So in 1993. Dale, by now, was working with us, with Carl Lewis and I, uh, we were working on a group by that point called the US Sports Council on organ donation. Carl and I were the co chairs. Okay. And Dale was one of our charter members. And Dale called me one day, he said, I've got an idea, Jeffrey. You know the way Dale is, yep. once he's got an idea in mind, he's gonna oh, do it. You're wearing he out said, let, yeah. He said, Let's do a game in the superdome for organ donation. I said, Dale, if you're serious, I remember that. I'll be on a plane tomorrow morning, we'll sit down and start figuring this thing out. So sure enough. We did a national TV game in January of 1994 in the Superdome, LSU against North Carolina. Dean Smith was coaching the Tar Heels, and Dale was coaching the Tigers. It was a national TV game with CBS. Jim Nance and Billy Packer were there. And by golly, the introduction before the game, Carl Lewis came out to center court, introduced my beautiful sister Wendy, who was oh, still wow. alive at the time, awesome. and sang. We, the whole thing was called dribbling for donors. The whole concept was to promote organ donation and once Carl spoke about organ donation, introduced Wendy, he sang the national anthem. We called it his comeback anthem. It was absolutely perfect. He nailed it, and I was standing at the side court there, and when Carl and Wendy walked off, we, the three of us had a hug, and I'm not gonna use the exact language I used then, I'll (laughs) clean it up a little, but my Don't worry. This is a podcast. Don't worry. You can
0: do anything you want on this. (laughs) Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I I need ratings. uh, I need ratings.
1: (laughs) I'm going to keep my language where it should be. Okay. But I will tell you that I basically said to Carl, let's see if ESPN puts that one on. But no, of course, he sang it too well for them to put that one on. Yeah. But (laughs) we called that his comeback anthem, and now you know the postscript.
0: I love that. That is great. Jeffrey Marks, you're a treasure. you're a great friend, and I'm so glad that you live in Baton Rouge and I live in Baton Rouge and Dale Brown's our friend. This has been great. Uh, Again, folks, coaches, uh, business leaders, season of life, okay? I went on Amazon the other day. I looked at, I I have a copy, but I, I wanted to get one for a friend. You know how much they're charging Jeffrey now for that book? I think it's overpriced, honestly. Uh, How much is it? It's like, it was like seventy four bucks for a hardcover book.
1: No, that's yeah. not true. You were looking. You must have been looking at some special sign something or other. Because hey. I want to say originally that book was nineteen ninety five. Yeah, right. and I want to say it's twenty three or twenty four dollars now. You
0: know what though? I don't care if it's a hundred. It's damn worth it. Well, (laughs) you're you're terrific, man, and and I really appreciate it. And and the great thing is uh, you and I can grab lunch whenever the heck we want. So, folks. And that's a heck of a deal. Yeah. Thank you again, my friend. Uh, Folks, Jeffrey Marks, one of the best, great, great author. More importantly, a great man. And Brendan,
1: if I I may, I'm sorry to interrupt If I may, for anyone else, we're lucky enough, we can get together anytime we want. But if anyone wants to reach me or learn more about these programs, uh, the website is jeffreymarks.org. That's one solid word, jeffreymarks, M-A-R-X, dot org. And if you want to follow the Season of Life journey, which has now been going on for 16 years, believe it or not, you can do that on Twitter, and I use at jeffreymarks25, at jeffreymarks, the number 25. Great.
0: Thank you so much for pointing that out, and I appreciate it. My friend, thank you for doing this, and uh, I know our listeners appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Brendan. Appreciate you.